while people were actually live and on time this time for Talking Thrones Season 3, Past the Midpoint, Season 3, Episode 6, The Climb. I can officially say that this is probably, like, the first, like, after the Battle of Blackwater, like, the first, like, really great, like, visual spectacle showcase episode. Pat, what are your thoughts on that? Hey, listen, Dom, I think the Talking TV family can agree with me that we're uh, climbing to the top of this season, right? We're, we're about to see back. the end of the stuff, right? The jokes are back. Let's bring it. It's been a hot minute since Pat has cracked one of yeah, those. Yeah, a lot of chaos. We're, we're just, you know, climbing right towards it. And hey, some people don't get the chance to climb. Indeed. All of that and more. Stay tuned. Damn, I just got to give Chris another shout out because, again, it's been too long and I haven't given him enough of a enough of a shout out for that. Uh, Chris, unfortunately, won't be on this week's episode of the Talking TV podcast, but man, he did such a kick ass job with that theme song. But yeah, Pat, season three, episode six. We're here, dude. We are we are chugging along. We're almost completely done with season three. It still feels like yesterday that we were just wrapping up that we were at this point in season two. I remember season two, episode six was this is at that point where we were like, oh, man, this is really just taking its time towards the Battle of Blackwater. And I definitely think that without a doubt, this was the point in the show where we were starting to where definitely there were things needed to be upped just a little bit. You know, we were still we were on the road to the Red Wedding. People, of course, didn't know what the Red Wedding, what it was going to be or whether it was going to happen just yet. And I can safely say that this is the point after last week's awesome, incredible episode that like there this is an episode that has a lot of great moments. Again, this is a visual marvel as far as just episodes go. But it's definitely the point where we're like, okay, we we need to pick up the pace a little bit because there's a lot of moments here. That I'm just like, okay, we could, uh, we could, we could still be going with this. But again, it's it ends with, it has probably it's it's very similar to two episodes ago where the kind of the first half of the episode is meh, but the but the, like the final sequence that ends this episode is like one of the best things that the show has ever done. I don't know what's your thoughts on that. Hey, yeah, I think this episode, I agree with you. You know, it's it starts off at the bottom and you uh, work your way up to uh, something that's pretty exciting. So uh, maybe the sh- story structure of this episode is like a ladder as well, right. <laughs> you know. Um, so it's it's one of those things like, uh, you know, hey, there's great scenes like uh, Tywin and Elena. Uh, you got, uh, you know, obviously Littlefinger, what he says to Varys, uh, you know, about the climbing and, and all that stuff. So obviously the actual uh, physical climb that John and the wildlings make up. The ex- wall exactly. The so there's there's a lot of. Uh, rememberable moments here uh, that I would say that people, you know, that saw the series, maybe they're not recapping it uh, or maybe they're, they are with us. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that these moments are, are ones that you remember, you know, well beyond the show. Yeah, indeed. It's one of those ones where, again, like looking back, I remember the little finger speech really well. I love the Tywin Olena moment. And I, again, like the actual climb itself, like again, how it's framed. This is the second of four episodes that's directed by Alex Sakharov. Famously started as a DP for The Sopranos and directed last, uh, my one of my favorite episodes from last season, What Is Dead May Never Die. He directs this episode and then he directs um, two of, two of, one of the best episodes of the entire show next season with the laws of gods and men, the Tyrion trial episode that that's going to be a lot of big ones there. And also famously directs another episode that is memorable, strangely in its own way, mockingbird, which is the episode where Littlefinger kind of low key reveals that he instigated the plot of this entire thing and then kills Lysa. But this episode is again, it's, I, I don't know. I guess we just got to break it down. Honestly, like, because again, the way that the, it's very interesting, kind of the structure of this episode, where the way it kind of progressively builds and builds and builds without you even realizing it. So we start off North of the wall, quick scene. We check in with Sam and Gilly as they're continuing their trek down North of the wall. Again, like this is really the point where it's like, okay, we're just stolling for time yeah, until I, we get, I don't remember this scene. And I, I literally just watched it. Like and an I think hour there's ago. a reason, and I, <laughs> you know? and I think there's a reason why, because it's just, Gilly criticizing Sam for not being able to make a fire. Sam showing her the dragon oh, glass. Yeah, yeah. They don't know what's I, important yet. She doesn't care. I, I lo- it's it's like uh, Gilly's like, hey, move the big logs. And he does. 
And then he passively aggressively says, well, at least you know your fires, you know, or something like that. So, like, I, I now kind of rem- vaguely remember uh, watching this. I, I might, to be honest with you, I might have been paying attention to, uh, you know, my fantasy football team uh, at the beginning of this episode. But, uh, hey. It makes sense. It's uh, not a very impactful <laughs> opening. It's just about, I think the only thing that really comes from this scene is, like, Sam establishes, like, oh, how high the wall is, which is then obviously visually confirmed in the next scene when, um, what's it called? Oh, yeah, when. Yeah, yeah. The actual, like, the, you see the wall for the first time when they actually start climbing? Yeah, he says some of it's hidden by the clouds. I remember that uh, sentence for sure. So I guess I was half paying attention. Um, but it's, you know, setting the picture, the you know, how grandiose the wall is. Because we've seen it from, you know, Castle Black and, and we've seen them sort of embodying uh, their base. But we haven't really approached it from the way that the wildlings uh, would see it. And since that's the theme of this episode is uh, climbing over this wall, making this dangerous climb uh, to get to the other side and sneak across and and really, you know, set up a a surprise attack on uh, the Night's Watch. You know, basically, it's setting the stage, setting that seed really early on in this episode uh, to give you something that's visually stunning by the end of uh yeah you know, absolutely and again it, and again it pays off because the next scene we see is john and the wildlings preparing to climb the wall and again this is this it's really interesting because i don't th- outside of like a major battle i don't think that any other game of thrones episode is really structured an episode this way where rather than have the big action set piece be at the end of the episode to top it off right as we would get in later episodes rather the action is framed or rather the rest of the storylines are kind of framed around this big action set piece where we keep cutting back to it progressively throughout the rest of the episode where it starts off right with them at the base of the wall and john having that conversation with egret and egret being like okay I, she kind of confesses after teasing and jostling him a little bit. Well, yeah, well, they're doing the whole, uh, you know, lovers, uh, lovers teasing, quarrel. You know? Yeah, but but it um, ends up being more than that because she ends up revealing that she knows that he still has some form of allegiance to the Night's Watch. But he, she, she also kind of inherently knows, like she clues him in that she's smarter than the Night's Watch. She knows that he also does truly have feelings for her. In yeah, a way what's, that, like, what's her exact phrasing? Like, I'm I'm not as as you I'm know, not as dumb stupid as the, rest of your, as the uh, as your pretty uh, southern ladies or something. Like yeah, that. the the women in silks and all that type of stuff. Right. And uh, the main thing that she says is basically, it's like you're loyal to the Night's Watch. I'm loyal to Mance, but they don't care about us. We're just soldiers in their war. And the main thing is we need to stay loyal to each other. And I think uh, that's one of the things that, um, you know, makes this storyline that we're embarking on between the two of them, between John and Egret, uh, so fantastic is the fact that um, they should keep that bond of loyalty to each other. Uh, They should throw away, you know, sort of that, um, you know, the the traditions of the Night Watch and the Wildlings and and that conflict uh, and really look out for themselves. But uh, as we'll see as the episodes go on throughout the next season, uh, we'll find out that that's really uh, easier said than done. Yeah, we'll find that. Yeah, unfortunately, again, with how tragically that storyline ends. My biggest takeaway from this is that the like the for me the relation the reason why John's time with the wildlings was so was for me the most kind of fulfilling part in his journey is the fact that besides the besides the, that it was prepping him to be a leader in a way that he wasn't even re- realizing or ready for it like it allowed him to like kind of spend time with the commoners, you know, a big kind of underlying theme that I see happening throughout, you know, both the book that this is based off of a storm of swords, as well as throughout season three, which, which predominantly adapts the bulk of a storm of swords before we get to the last half is that a lot of the characters do spend time with a lot of the commoners and they do begin to understand like, you know, you know, last season was different. You know, they were all kind of in the middle of an action. They were, it was wartime. They were kind of like trying to figure out, like just pick a spot in order to like kind of survive and wait at their corner of the war while not actively waging sides. But this season definitely interacts a lot of the major characters who for the most part, all pretty much highborn with a lot of the lower born, you know, Arya with the brotherhood, John with the wildlings, Daenerys with her encounters with the slaves. Um, even brand to an extent with Jojen and Mira and um, what's it called Jamie and his journeys throughout the Riverlands, even, you know, with, even in King's Landing with Marjorie making more of an attempt to interact with the commoners in ways that the Lannisters and the Tyrells weren't in the last season. And the biggest, and, and that, again, it adds a lot of perspectives to them. It adds a lot. It helps them understand a lot more about, about ruling, what ruling is a lot of, you know, just the common practices. And the thing that's also the, the other, the great framing device that helps propel this episode just in general, besides that, Besides that idea is Littlefinger's kind of chaos as a ladder idea at the end, which is the idea that, again, 
he almost takes the opposite perspective where a lot of these characters have not had a lot of interaction with the commoners, but because Littlefinger did come from that and because he wants to do everything he can to get away from that lifestyle because he does, because he net, because he's been, and he sees humanity at its worst and he doesn't ever want to go back there. He will do whatever he can in order to ensure that that happens. And that is by kind of creating this endless cycle of chaos for which he is always seemingly on top, that he is always seemingly at the master. And it's kind of a great, I think, um, metaphorical companion to the literal visual companion of climbing the wall, which is just, again, this unbearable, um, you know, beast of nature that has no sympathy towards, um, you know, towards those that are just trying to survive and climb over it. It's, it's a really interesting metaphor for life just in general as they climb over the wall, right. you know, as the, as the crack happens, as John saves Egret, and then once they make it to the wall and they kind of see the other side, they see the horizon as to what's coming next. You know, it's, it's beautifully framed how it's done so. And, and he really does a good job of like kind of illustrating, I think, both that visual uh, metaphor and literal. Yeah, but I, but I think it's also a character metaphor for John because, you know, obviously he is the bastard son of Ned Stark and now he's making this huge climb, you know, with the wildlings and, you know, he's basically risking his life to save Egret and, you know, uh, the whole thing is like if the world is uh, chaos right now, right? Even in his world where the Night's Watch and the Wildlings are against each other, that's very chaotic. And he's climbing the ladder, uh, you know, in that world. He's going to, you know, as we know, become uh, the, you know, the the commander, uh, the Lord Commander. And so the fact is, like, he's, you know, putting all his energy uh, risking death to basically make this climb. And he's also, uh, that's the climb he's making t- towards his leadership, as you put it, uh, of the Night's Watch. Yes, absolutely. Indeed. And again, like I, I love the shot that it ends on with them at the end, where after Littlefinger's made his speech and they're standing on top of the wall, they look out, obviously they look north and they kind of see all the lands north and then they look south and it's this beautiful picturesque green. And then obviously they start making out because they have to like, but because of course that's required, but yeah. It's, well, it's, that, that keeps the romantic storyline going. Uh, that's very key to uh, the next season. So. Of course, definitely. Yeah, I, I, we, have, we haven't re- read a comment in a while, but Eric brought up something really interesting where Storm of Swords kind of splits similarly to Dune, but somehow Game of Thrones season three is a lot less feeling like half a story, but maybe that's because it's the show. It's a show we're expecting to leave us on a cliffhanger to an extent. Yes. I think the only major difference there is that Dune literally only adapts the first third of the novel, at least the movie that we saw versus season three is three quarters of the novel of Storm of Swords. Like season four is literally like the back half, like from Joffrey's wedding and death, all the way to the end, like of season four, which is where book three ends. It's like, it's not even like, a, it's not even a full quarter of the book. Like that's how much it is. So that, that, that's a predominantly bulk of everything that's going on. We got a couple more just stopping just in general. That, that's the thing that I like is that every other storyline, it really is microscopic in comparison to this. And it feels quick. We stop it in the North. Oh man, just everything going on here. I'm like, I feel like we could just cut. I'm like, we don't need this. We get it. We get the idea. <laughs> well, I think you need Bran and, and his, uh, merry band of people, uh, traveling beyond the wall. Right. Uh, they're not even beyond the wall right now. No, they're know. not. They're, they're still in the North. They're still on their way to the wall. Jeez. They haven't even made it to the um, wall yet. You know, fast forward in my mind, but uh, hey, uh, you know, basically uh, it's Mira and Osho at each other's throats over the rabbits. Yeah. Like, or oh, it doesn't look like a rabbit. Yeah. And OSHA proves like, you know, it was a contest, you know, like uh, uh, what you call it? I saw that movie Army of Thieves on Netflix. And hey, he, how was that? Yeah, not as good as Army of the Dead, but Damn, uh, that's disappointing because Army of the Dead fucking it's, ruled. It's still it's still fun. So uh, check it out if, if you want. And I, I can't wait to hear your review if you're going to do that uh, here on the channel. But uh, <laughs> mainly, uh, you know, it's like uh, the character basically opens a safe in like eight, eight seconds flat. And uh, so does Osha with this rabbit skin it in like eight seconds flat. <laughs> so she was going to win a contest for skinning rabbits. Uh, she was going to beat Mira, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, 99 times out of 100. Right. And, but then Mira was always going to get that one. And Brad just basically tells him to stop arguing. And then uh, it's, it's one, this one kind of interesting scene, but not really where Jojen has a seizure. And then that Mira's like, yeah, oh, the visions take their toll. And like, again, that's just one of those moments in hindsight where I'm like, I I, I don't know. For, friggin, um, yeah, well, like, the, if Jojen has seizures, why doesn't Bran? Is that just a thing that was like intrinsic to him? That doesn't really well, have Bran, anything to do with the seizures. I guess, I guess Bran is not really having too many visions at this point. They're just sort of dreams and him controlling the animals. So, um, also, you know, it could just very well be that, you know, he, 
you know, Bran is stronger than, you know, he is in terms of, uh, you know, these capabilities are, you know, maybe he just has, uh, physical health issues. And the fact that, you know, the, these powers are also there, uh, combined, I guess they never really explain it. Uh, so it is like kind of a, a potential loophole that doesn't make any sense, but, uh, yeah, just go with it, you know, suspend yeah. your disbelief. And at least for this um, moment. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, when mirror kind of like coddles him and is like, Oh, I'm right here. I'm right here. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's not necessarily something that I remember going forward as a, a big story point. You know, this is sort of, as you just put it, like kind of thrown in there. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, Hey, it, it's maybe it just sets up the fact that he's fragile and, and he'll maybe. be killed at some point. I, I don't know. Don't get too attached. Yeah. Because, don't get too know, attached. I feel like, I'm, I feel like I'm quoting the suicide squad. I feel like the suicide squad <laughs> pretty much like borrowed game of Thrones, the entire th- mantra, which was don't get attached. But, <laughs> Oh man, Eric's also getting into Army of Thieves, saying, "Yeah, it wasn't uh, Army of the Dead. I liked, but Army of the Army of Thieves wasn't great." And he said, "Even Missande couldn't save it." Wow, look at look at yeah. the guys right there. Hey, yeah, listen, she, she like, just jumped in on the action on the action uh, show. Yeah, right Ar- Army of Thieves was probably a half hour too long, and uh, Missande, um, you know, very interesting casting for an action type heist movie. Uh, she she kind of pulls it off for sure, but uh, you know. Um, you know, really, like I'm. I've never seen a heist movie with someone who just has like this fantastic, optimistic uh, demeanor the whole entire time. Yeah, like, right. Gotta love, um, gotta love the theater character. It makes me miss him even more. He he was probably my favorite character from Army of the Dead, just in general, because that guy was so much fun. But uh, real quick, back to Talking Thrones and Game yeah. of Thrones, just in general, the show that we're actually. Well, hey, hey, listen, about. there there is a crossover here with the indeed, uh, you know uh, Masande actually yeah. acting in in you know Army of Thieves. So indeed, yeah, uh, so. It, for detour. The, the only other storyline we had to cover in the North. Oh, man, we're back. Your favorite. We got a break from it last week, but unfortunately, we, we have to keep doing it. The Theon torture stuff. That This is the point where we're past the intrigue. We know that this is just, you know, just torture for torture's sake. And yeah, friggin. Well, this is probably uh, the best uh, torture scene of the thing because it only gets worse from here. Uh, (laughs) You know, so basically, uh, you know, Theon is 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 asleep and, uh, you know, what's his face? Ramsey. Uh, blows the bullhorn and wakes him up and uh, you know he has a parched throat he wants some water and uh, Ramsey does the whole I pour the water on the floor type of thing you know so it's it's like he's really just toying with him uh, and he decides to play another game and that's all this scene is is just one big game for Ramsey and it's guess who I am guess where you are guess why I'm torturing you but um, as it goes to show ultimately as he says if you think that this has a happy ending you haven't been paying attention because the thing that's established yeah, that's here, a great line it is <laughs> one of the best lines ever I think it, it's totally just like I feel like that's what they consulted a George R.R. R. Martin, right? And he's like, he's like, we George, we know you didn't actually write out this sequence in the books. It was only alluded to off-screen in later books, but like, come on, just give us a juicy one-liner there. And he's like, all right, like, because that's that is a George R.R. R. Martin one-liner. If I ever heard one, it went because it's why it's so good, because it doesn't make any sense for Ramsey to say for Ramsey as a character to say something like that. But it's still so awesome. It so illustrates just like what exactly what it is that he's going for, which is there really is no rhyme or reason or motive for why he's torturing Theon. He's just doing it just because he can, you know, like kind of almost the reasoning for why Theon is being tortured as far as him taking over the North has almost been forgotten. And like kind of as he's found himself in like this new depth of hell, just in general, you know, you don't want to talk about just taking a wrong out of that ladder of chaos right there. Yeah, Eric in the chat is basically wondering if uh, the Theon scene that we've been uh, leading uh, up to happens uh, that next is week or not. In that you would be correct. That is indeed next week. Oh, it does scene. happen. It does well, happen next week. So the yeah. our audience here, the the Talk TV family, should save the date. It's uh, you know Theon's uh, favorite toy goes the, the away. The loss of Theon's favorite toy. Yeah, it's oh my god. I, maybe we should skip that episode. Maybe, it's, maybe. It's really, I don't know. Well, no, that, that's also the one with the, with the Jamie Brand bear pit scene, and I do like that scene. Okay, so I can at least uh, maybe I'll just uh, pay attention to fantasy football during the uh, Theon scene <laughs> and uh, just you know pay attention during the bear scene. Yeah, but ultimately, again, that's the big takeaway here. Theon, again, he guesses 
incorrectly after incorrectly after incorrectly. First, he, um, he guesses um, Deepwood Mott, and then he's like, nope. And then he's like, uh, uh, last heart, and he's like, do I look like an umber to you? And then he gets his car hole. That he he does manage successfully manage to guess that he is being held somewhere in the north, and at least he thinks that he's being held for betraying Rob of the North. But of course, Ramsey factors in. He's like, oh, you forgot to guess one thing. You forgot to guess that I'm a liar. And then goes. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that's definitely after he you know Ramsey plays along with him. It's like, oh, you got that one right. You're right. You, you know, blah blah blah. Uh, and then yeah, he he springs the liar on him, and it's it's yep. one of those things where like, uh, you know, this is the perfect embodiment of who Ramsey is. And no matter what happens, like from the moment he's introduced to the moment that uh, you know uh, he feeds his hounds, so to speak, um, you know his character stays true to this very malicious, evil uh, character that you just you just love to hate. You yeah. know, it's it's like this is a despicable person, no absolutely. doubt. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, know? yeah, he, um, yeah. Again, like you you love to hate him because he's so charming, at least as the from an actor sense. But his character is. Probably the most despicable character because, again, he takes all of kind of the twisted everything that Joffrey has. Again, there's a reason why Joffrey takes a backseat this season after having such an imposing part last season, but combines it with like this cruel, sick sense of intelligence ultimately that Joffrey yeah. does not possess. Well, this is one of the things that's very interesting is like tracking uh, how how sadistic are some of these bad guys. Like, because you have Cersei, you have Ramsey. Uh, you know, the, two of the biggest, you know, bads of this show, uh, besides the Night King. And, you know, it's like they'll go th through anything to get what they want. And, you know, which one does the more cruel uh, actions, you know, or takes the more cruel actions? Like, you know, hey, Cersei does a little bit of, uh, you know, unfortunately, terrorism in King's Landing towards the later seasons. Yeah. Uh, you know, that probably kills off a lot more people or at least in a much crueler way um, than, you know, Ramsey, who, who's uh, right. just, he's just about torture. He's just about, you know, uh, fighting his armies. Um, you know, she's just like, yeah, they're disposable, <laughs> you know? So like, um, you know, the, the morals of some of the characters, you know, including in the final season where we, uh, we see Danny's morals sort of, uh, uh shift, uh, you know, it's like, are we comparing, uh, you know, Ramsey, Cersei and Danny all in one sort of category, you know, um, you know, we'll have to see as, as the show goes on. Yes, indeed. Ultimately. But so that leaves us off with the North. And so then we cut to the Riverlands again, just some brief sequences that happened here before. Again, it surprises me how much stuff actually does happen in King's Landing, but, uh, we check in with Arya who's training with the Brotherhood. She's training and shooting bows and arrows with Angai. Angai, again, still one of the greatest names and one of the best characters in the show yeah. that ultimately just disappears after this season. Never to be seen again. He's given her kind of, you know, some extra tips, you know, kind of a, more of like a pseudo commentary on Rob and on John in the first episode. But who arrives? Melisandre ultimately up to no good as per usual. The thing that I love about this sequence right here and what transpires is it ultimately shows that it's like, nah, what Melisandre does, that's not exclusive to all the Red Priests. It's just her own like kind of twisted nature just in general. She goes, you know, she has this conversation with Thoros. They obviously know each other. Um, well, not necessarily know each other, but they have this common lineage. Obviously, going back to the Temple of Ashai, it kind of clues us into a little bit of Thoros's um, Thoros's past and history, and him. You know what got him in King's Landing in the first place? They go to see Beric, and she's almost surprised to see that Beric is alive and has been resurrected as many times as he has. And there's a little bit of interesting commentary here, which is how which is how it illustrates the difference because Melisandre it almost always seems like her faith dictates her actions but with Thoros it's literally the opposite where Thoros gives this big long speech about how oh, yeah, he has his backstory right awesome. his backstory where he had completely <laughs> you know? he had completely lost his faith ultimately until he saw Beric fall in battle and he spoke the words because he just happened to know them from when he was younger and then he saw them resurrect Beric and it kind of like restored his faith just in general so that that's yeah what, what do you say it's like I said the old words not because I believed in them but because you they were know, the only I, ones I knew and he was my friend yeah Exactly. And, and then, you know, that's when I started believing that the Lord of Light actually exists. And, you know, even though he's not necessarily going on a, a crusade like Melisandre is, uh, he definitely believes in the Lord of Light, believes that there's some sort of plan and is following it in his own way. And that makes it amenable for Melisandre to make a deal with them. Uh, hey, we'll give you the money because the Lord of Light wants, uh, you know, Gendry. Or at and least her own version thinks that she thinks that she wants the Lords of the Lord of Light for Gendry. 
Yeah. So the Brotherhood is, you know, kind of willing, hey, Gendry is going to go help the Lord of Light. That's good by us because he keeps bringing, you know, me back and, you know, hey, that's all good. Yeah. And then but obviously there, there's a fi- <laughs> But again, yeah. it's a slight problematic because, again, there's a financial aspect involved. She could have just as easily paid them without the whole Lord of Light backstory and spiel. And I have another problem, too, because, again, I'm noticing here that a lot of the things that they try to pay off from earlier seasons and later seasons, a lot of those things happen here and they're not very paid off. Well, well first with with with. with with the um what's it called with the with Jojen with the seizures and then with with Arya and Melisandre because Arya of course this is just continuing with her disillusionment with the brotherhood right she keeps you yeah know, well she, they'll, they'll meet again and uh they they do, they do. <laughs> um, oh and no, I, and don't forget the don't forget <laughs> you can't forget the prophecy ultimately brown eyes blue eyes green eyes that she'll shut forever and that they will meet again it's like wow you couldn't be more vague if you tried there and like yeah. that's one of those things where it's like i don't necessarily remember off the top of my oh wait no it didn't happen in the books because this entire fucking sequence is made up this entire thing was made up like melisandre never crossed over met with the brotherhood in the books that never happened it was completely made up what happened was is again it's another one of those infamous consolidation of characters where benioff and weiss there was another one of robert's bastard named edric storm that um melisandre constructed another shadow baby to kill another guy when they were trying to take storm's end and then they ended up getting edric storm and he had been living on dragonstone and you know being friends with shireen Melisandre and Stannis were going to sacrifice that guy, that bastard. Melisandre never left Dragonstone. There was never any going to get Gendry or anything. And Davos sets that bastard free, ultimately. And that's when, um, what's it called? And, and, and that's how that storyline goes in the books. This entire thing is made up. So this entire thing is ultimately fabricated because, which I guess is what kind of makes the payoff even labor in the finale. But I don't know. Like, what, what's your take on that? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, for the show, I think, you know, it kind of gets us from point A to point B, right? You know, yeah. uh, the whole leech thing has to happen and the, the uh, you know, the three people have to die, which even that, you know, is, is kind of lame because two die relatively within a reasonable time frame. Right. Uh, and, and then we got to wait until the end where it's like, oh, so that's supposed to be a clue that Arya kills the Night King? Really? Well, no, I think the third leech is, uh, you know, uh, what's his face? The, oh, well, no, we're talking pa- about the leeches. Sorry. My yeah, yeah, Papa Greyjoy. And, yeah. Uh, and you know, it takes an extra two seasons. An extra yeah, two so, seasons after. Yeah, so, so the, yeah, I, I know we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. I'm kind of uh, trying to. Uh, keep it on the down low because we're going to talk about it as it happens. But uh, yeah, the the leech storyline uh, it just happens. It's it's part of it. I, I think it's just you you know in any TV show you're trying to have the characters do something and take actions and you know do what they think is you know best. And um, it seems like Melisandre and Stannis are going to be sort of relatively on the back burner for a little bit, uh, at least until they invade North of the Wall. Uh, so everything that's happening you know between Blackwater and, you know, the moment where they kind of, uh, you know, at the end of next season, uh, basically all that stuff is sort of just like, uh, you know, simmering on the back uh, burner. So, uh, you know, having Melisandre find Gendry, uh, having them go back to Dragonstone, having them have this prophecy and some of it comes true and whatnot, it's, it's just giving those characters something to do. Uh, you know, just like Davos is learning the read right now, you know, it becomes important later on, but at, at the same time, uh, you know, he's just sort of hanging out in prison. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things yeah. where uh, it's so funny things I always, to do. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause I always thought that Davos like was in like a decent amount of episodes this season and he's only in like four. Ultimately it's, it's not that many, but uh, we got two more storylines covered the Riverlands. One, we check in with Jamie and Brienne briefly at Harrod Hall. They're only, it's only the one sequence. Oh my God. Yeah, it's Bruce Bolton, right? You know, he's yeah, it's basically Bruce Bolton sh- show it off and flexing where he's yeah, he's having dinner with Jamie, Jamie and uh, you know Brienne, and uh, Jamie, I love this part. Jamie's just like stabbing the yeah. piece of beef with one hand, and, and, and Brienne's trying to help him out, but ultimately she just slams her hand down. And and Bruce yeah. ultimately says he's like, um, you know, obviously, you know, I would, be, you know, I what I should be doing is I should be delivering you to Rob, and he's and Jamie's like, but you haven't. So what are you actually doing? And he's like, I'm. And he's like, wars cost money, and we need the gold. And he's like, so I will allow, so I will return you safely to your father for a profit. And Jamie tries to get Brienne to come with him. And she's like, oh, no, Brienne's going to be staying here. You know, she is aided and abetted treason. 
ultimately, and so she will not be going. What? So obviously, we let's yeah, talk about this the, real quick. Let's talk about the best part, right? You know, Jamie says that won't do. Brienne's coming with me, and, and Bruce, Bruce like, Bolton oh, just says, "Oh." You overplayed your position, right? I'm so, like, oh man, that was that was great. Yeah, that was, I, I was think like I, again, it's it, the writing in this episode is is spot on. Uh, you know, because even though this is a small scene, uh, the whole leading up to the overplayed your hand, but you know, he pauses right. and changes his phrasing. Do, do, do you think they structure uh, that entire it, dialogue scene around that one line and the one like kind of changed pun ultimately? Of, of course, they like you know <laughs> it was uh, whoever wrote that scene you know um, uh, did a great job you know yeah. uh, it's it's the writing throughout this episode is spot on. Yeah, again, this, this is uh, Benioff and Weiss come back to write this episode, and I'm not going to say that it all works, but the moments that do, they really, really work. Because oh man, that line is brilliant ultimately. But I wanted to ask, so Bolton obviously we know has been in some communication with Tywin Lannister, right? That's why he's um. There's a reason why um. What's it called? There's a reason why um, Ty. The, the, oh my god, fucking brain today. Um, there's a reason why ultimately, like that Tywin has not been making as big a fuss about Jamie in King's Landing. So like, but so he leaves Brienne there. Obviously, he intends to leave her with Locke ultimately. So that that's just him tying up loose ends, right? Making sure again, Brienne is somebody that could potentially be a threat to Cat a threat obviously to the pending red wedding ultimately like so you think that he's just eliminating a potential threat or do you think he just doesn't even consider her of consequence and he's just getting rid of her no I, I think at this point like you know they're never going to confirm or deny type of thing you know in this story that bruce Bolton is is plotting already for the uh, red wedding uh but i think it's pretty clear that he is right you know it's right. It, they're never going to show that to us, uh, the, the directors and whatnot. But, uh, you know, obviously he's returning Jamie, which is what Tywin wants. Uh, and then he's going to get uh, the lordship of the north. Right. And I, I do think that Brienne, you know, uh, being of Tarth is like uh, that is one family that you definitely don't want to come across. And, right. you know, obviously she's. Um, you know, uh, young enough, she's strong enough. Uh, you know, she is probably going to be like, uh, the fiercest combatant of that family. And she's already pledged allegiance to Catelyn Stark. So, uh, she is an enemy. Bruce has a target on, you know, sees a target on her back. Um, and you know, as, as you talk about the bear pit that's coming up, uh, it's a simple way, not, not the cleanest way, but it is a way to get rid of, uh, Brienne, uh, which, you know, could snowball into some sort of problem for them, uh, in their plot to, um, you know, stabilize the kingdoms, I guess, uh, for the Lannisters and the Boltons. Yes, indeed. And ultimately it's a good thing that Jamie comes back to save her next episode because it ultimately, I think kind of erases what could have been a huge problem ultimately for, um, what's it called for both the Boltons and the Lannisters going forward. So, Hey, look at that. It's a small moment, but one more scene of the Riverlands, ultimately just continuing in the slow step down of the Redway. So like at this point in the show, right. With Rob cutting off regard, car Stark's head at the end, like it, the red wedding is basically assured at this point. It's just like kind of waiting it out. Right. Obviously he has the meeting with the phrase ultimately, you know, lame Lothar and Blackwalder. Um, you know, they, they seem to be, you know, playing it very cordial, right? He promises them Hall. You know, of course, Edmure is still trying to throw a buck talk. Edmure, poor Edmure, he's still trying to flex just wherever he can, just in general, and nobody is having any of it. It's good to see that, like, even seasons later when Tobias Menzies makes his return in season six and then the final season, nobody, everybody takes him just about as seriously as they did initially, which is that Edmure is trying to buck talk. He's trying to back off, but Rob reminds him who is in command. The Freys negotiate. They want Hall, and they want Edmure to marry one of Walder Frey's daughters in place of Rob. And Edmure throws up resistance for why? Maybe you can clue me in on this. I'm like, is it a show of like humiliation? Is it just try him trying to hold on to some vicious of pride? Does he like not like Walder Frey? Like, does he not understand how the game is played? Like that whole sequence to me, I'm just like, Really, dude? Really? It's just like, it's the most pitiful act of just like childhood, like of childlike, you know, resistance to something just in general, you know? Well, I, I think Edmir, this is his character, right? He's not necessarily um, leader of the pack, you know? So, yeah, so I, I think it's one of those things where it kind of, um, you know, he wants to negotiate, right? He wants to haggle for his pick of whatever daughter Walter Frey is going to offer. And, you know, it's like, let's deny him. You know, he's been, you know, at me for my lifetime to marry one of his daughters. Uh, so we'll deny and then he'll come back and let me choose. And everybody there 
says that's not how the game's played. Uh, the Blackfish wants to like just punch him in the face, pretty much. Understandably and, so. Yeah, and, and basically, uh, you know, they bring up the windmill, right? He took the windmill, uh, the stone windmill, uh, and that lost Rob a major victory. And you know, hey, it's like if you want to make amends for this, just say yes, just marry whatever daughter it is, and let's move on. And that's really where the scene ends, you know, it, it, with him agreeing uh, under, you know, uh, peer pressure, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. It's it's again, like it's, it's a small piece just in general on the way there. But it's a, it's a rather humorous moment. And again, it's like the, the, the next couple episodes, we really don't see much of them because I think the next episode is just them marching. And then I think episode eight, I don't think they're. Oh, no. Episode eight. Sorry. They um, what's it called. They arrived there. And uh, yeah, it's uh, at this point, again, it's just the, the slow descent. Uh, down down the trade. It's funny because I think I remember seeing a meme. It's like somebody at this point in the show, like right before they were about to begin season three, they're like, oh, I don't see how Game of Thrones go past season three. Ultimately, it just seems like that, like Rob's going to win the day. Joffrey's going to die at the end, you know, and then they're just going to go north. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, hindsight is 2020, huh? Just in general. But um, yeah, so we wrap up ultimately in King's Landing. Um, again, the starts off again. Just the, the little moments here, again, with the slow, like, kind of political game that's happening back and forth between the Lannisters and the Tyrell. This whole scene is just Tywin Lannister. It's just Tywin Lannister and Olena Tyrell, the two super old, like, powerhouses of their respective clans just flexing on each other. And it is so deliciously well-written. It is so incredible, like, how they're trading barbs back and forth. Tywin, you know, trying to call out, you know, um, Olena calling Cersei too old. Tywin, uh, you know criticizing Loris's blatant homosexuality. Elena bringing up the idea of um, of uh, Jamie and Cersei's incest. And ultimately, it ends with the ultimate trump card. Of And here's the thing, is that even though they are flexing on each other, Elena does have some legitimate concerns with that she understands that, you know, it's funny because this is another change they make in the books. In the, in the show, Marjorie and Loris are the only Tyrell siblings, but in the books, um, Loris has two older brothers, um, one of who, the older of whom is who they're planning to marry Sansa to, obviously, because they, they and, and that's the thing in the books is that there is, there's a reason why Loras kind of exclusively sticks to the warrior lifestyle. War, Loras is immediately granted the King's Guard position in the books because everybody kind of knows about his latent homosexuality, so they're not trying to, like, make any vows on him. Here, though, Loras is the only inherent male heir to Highgarden, so they know that the Tyrell name dies if Loras does not have any heirs. So, obviously, Olena's main concern comes to the fact that Loras may not be able to have any heirs with Cersei because Cersei just might be too old, ultimately. Tywin... Obviously, doesn't believe this, but in order to kind of assuage Olena, but also in order to get her on his side, he threatens to, ironically enough, make Loras a member of the Kingsguard, which would therefore forfeit any vows, ultimately, and ultimately kind of rob Olena of any future Tyrell heirs, ultimately. She tries to pull yeah. back. It's very interesting, this sequence, you know, because obviously, oh, uh, we'll put him in the Kingsguard. Um, but, you know, the way that it is already, like, they, they both know that Joffrey is not really the legitimate king. Right. And, you know, th this is sort of talked about in this dialogue um, that, oh, well, if, you know, if the incest is true, then Joffrey's not really the king. Right. Um, you know, and, and it's all about perception. And so even though, you know, uh, Cersei may... Uh, not be able to uh, bear another child, it, you know, that's what Elena is sort of driving at. Um, that doesn't matter. If Loris is married to Cersei, um, you can literally just pluck a child in there uh, and call them a Lannister or Tyrell and, uh, you know, be on your merry way. Like the family can still retain power uh, generations right. upon generations uh, based on a lie. And, you know, but if you put him in the, the Kingsguard and he has a vow and he can't have any family, uh, it's going to be a harder lie to tell uh, that he had some sort of kid uh, despite being, you know, uh, you know, basically bound by this, uh, you know, vow that he takes. Yeah, so it's a good I, thing that they didn't. It's a good thing that they didn't have paternity tests in the Middle Ages because, oh man, that would have that would have cleared up so. But half the heirs probably wouldn't have even been the real heirs. Yeah. You know? So it's very interesting. Like you know, I feel like the dialogue here and just like what they're talking about is so rich that you can sort of, uh, you know, just read in between the lines and expand on what they're talking about. It's there's a lot of. Um, you know, uh, basically just planning that that's going on here, uh, that is, 
you know, they're thinking about they're they're playing a game that I don't think anyone else in the show uh, really is thinking about. Like right. their their experience, their just their their wisdom, and yeah. you know, and they even it, make a they even make a comment on it. They're both old, and they're both way too old to theoretically still be alive. But the fact that they are, they're like, yeah, they, there's a reason why the two of us are the two people essentially running this whole shindig. You know, it even it even brings to mind another scene from next season when Mace Tyrell tries to interject with a comment, and Olena just flat out tells him, "Not now, Mace." Like you're like treating him like a child, even though he's like an old man, you know, with grown children of his own, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting that you know to to see how the relationship between the Lannisters and the Tyrells is working out, and of course, this is all about you know what we seen last week, which was Cersei Manor uh, marries Loras. And then uh, basically Marjorie then can marry Joffrey. And, you know, this leads into... And then Sansa marries Tyrion, which leads into... Yeah, yeah, An exactly. interesting sequence. Again, we haven't so. had one of these really since the beginning of the season where um, Tyrion and Cersei have this, have this commentary, this back and forth where Tyrion asks if he's still in danger ultimately and Cersei tells him that more, you know, because again it's it's been so long that we've almost forgotten but Tyrion is still interested in who attempted to assassinate him oh yeah and he this, asks Cersei straight up because but, but at family. this point again he's he's figured it yeah. out ultimately because he's like look and, and again this is another thing that again was kind of cut from the books but also again the translation from the books was going to be difficult because of it was primarily inner monologue which is that Tyrion figures it because Tyrion's also figuring that whoever placed the assassination attempt on him was more than likely the same person who tried to do the assassination attempt on Bran last season. And he's like, look, Jamie would have done it himself because he wouldn't let anybody else do his dirty work. And Cersei would have been too smart to let something like that get traced back to her. So ultimately he figures out that it was Joffrey ultimately that was behind it. And he asks Cersei straight up. He's like, am I in danger? And she's like, no, now, now that Tywin is back in the city, Tywin again has a control over things that no one else really does. She's like, you're fine. Ultimately, you don't have to worry about this. And ultimately, again, they have a they have another interesting back and forth where they're just trading insults and barbs, ultimately, where he's like, I can't imagine what would happen once Jamie gets back, ultimately. Because at this point, like, everyone kind of knows it's only a matter of time before they find Jamie and before they get him back, where um, Tyrion is like, I think that if Loris ever does try to make a move on you, he's going to find himself coming down with a case of, what is it, sword and throat or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tyrion is, again... Uh laying down the one-liners in this scene. And, you know, I think it's, again, another well-crafted sequence because, you know, at at first he is asking Cersei, like, there's only two people that could do this. Like, was it you? And, you know, Cersei doesn't answer. Uh, And, you know, Tyrion, like you said, figured it out. So he's like, okay, well, then it was Joffrey. And and they go into, like, how stupid Joffrey actually is and how he can't even scheme properly. And and it goes, again, to my theory, like, you know, when people can't play the Game of Thrones properly, uh, they end up dead. And and Joffrey has proven time and time again uh, that he's not cunning. Has no knowledge or conception. Yeah, really doesn't know what the consequences of his actions are. And, you know, taking Ned Stark's head was, uh, you know, mistake number one. Uh, You know, trying to kill Tyrion was another mistake. Uh, You know, not just because uh, now Tyrion's sort of, you know, uh, wondering if his family uh, even wants him there or not. uh, But it's also because he did it in such a way that, you know, the soldiers in the army actually know uh, what Joffrey did and that he had tried to have Tyrion killed. Um, you know, so it's like the king and the, the hand of the king are having some sort of petty squabble. Um, and, you know, that's sort of a problem uh, if there is uh, sort of this uh, instability from a leadership point of view, uh, specifically since all the army knows that Tyrion is the one that saved everybody at Blackwater. So, um, you know, you tried to kill the hero of Blackwater. So like now your armies are going to fight for you. Like uh, maybe, maybe not, you know? Um, so it, it's one of those things where Joffrey doesn't really think three moves ahead. Yes, ultimately. It becomes very apparent. And then it's followed up by the next scene where, again, a couple of awkward interactions, right? They keep trying to play up this, you know, Sansa with one of the Tyrells, ultimately. But those scenes are starting to become more and more dull. You just have this one kind of funny sequence between her and Loras where they're trying to relate. But Loras clearly just has no interest in her. It's kind of funny because Loras is played up as, like, you know, this you know this heartthrob, this, you know, this vision, that, you know, that every woman wants, ultimately. But then it shows that, like, he really is not good when it comes to small talk. Ultimately, he would rather let his sword do all the talking. Uh, but, but, you know, both of them just in general. And um, 
what's it called? It's followed up by a very awkward encounter where, where Shay is dressing Sansa. They're talking about God only knows what or who cares. And uh, Tyrion walks in and, um, again, he's trying to make uh, some statements. Obviously, Sansa is still unaware that Shay and Tyrion are involved. You know, she makes a comment. Ultimately, you know, Tyrion tries to downplay it. And it's the moment where Tyrion ultimately well, has to confess that they're being married. And even though it doesn't, we don't actually see it happen. It's the buildup is just awkward enough where you can. Tell yeah, like, Tyrion, Tyrion is is basically like, uh, you know, the the moment when you hear something and it should have been said in a different way, and you know, <laughs> he's basically uh, doesn't want to tell uh, Sansa uh, that the two of them are now engaged uh, in front of Shay, and it's. He's trying to get Shay to leave so that he can tell her privately. Um, but, you know, once he gets back to that corner, you know, he's just stammering and doesn't really know what to say and, and kind of trying to avoid uh, avoid it until he just kind of blurts it out. And, uh, you know, yeah, it doesn't really go well for him uh, <laughs> in this scenario. No, unfortunately, it does not ultimately. But it cuts to, again, like... The ending's the ending shot where we end this episode with in the throne room. Ultimately, Varys walks up to Littlefinger, and this scene is just dynamite all around. So here's what I'll say ultimately in conclusion before we get to this sequence is it's another one of those episodes similar to last week where the individual moments that happen are so brilliantly written, so brilliantly executed. It's just kind of how they're all tied together where I don't know what it was. There was something about last week that just had a cohesiveness that I felt like was missing from this week, ultimately. And it may have just been the framing device of which it was centered around versus like kind of all these awesome, intense, super intrinsic character moments last episode as opposed to kind of this episode. It's kind of like these micro moments that are all framed around this one giant action set piece. But it's kind of Littlefinger and Varys kind of trading barbs back and forth as far as, you know, their individual plotting and scheming last episode, ultimately. You know, Littlefinger revealing that he knows that Varys had Ross planted as an imp. Um, you know, as a spy for him and how he attempted to make the play with the Tyrells with Sansa and how Littlefinger was able to thwart that by with the Lannisters and ultimately reveals that, uh, you know, uh, it, it ultimately reveals that um, what Varys reveals that he did what he did for the realm, kind of, again, continuing to show off, you know, their individual, where they're coming from, even though, you know, they have even though, the, you know, they're supposedly these very mysterious characters that want what they want for their own gain. And it kind of, you kind of like see the illustration of what it is that Varys fears about Littlefinger, where Varys, at the end of the day, he does care about the little people. He does care about kind of preserving, you know, you know, kind of this idea of law and order because otherwise everything will fall into chaos. And Littlefinger reveals, he's like, bring it on. I am the agent of chaos, essentially. You know, he's like, bring on yeah. the chaos. Ultimately. Well, I, I think one of the things is like, he talks about, you know, chaos is the ladder and it gives people the opportunity to climb and secure a position in the world. And, you know, one of the things is that he says, that, you know, many people don't climb. Uh, they basically, you know, uh, cling on to their gods. They cling on to their duty to the realm. They cling, you know, he even uh, throws in the whole idea that uh, what Varys is doing, you know, for the realm as something that's a hindrance to Varys, uh, you know, his personal gain. Well, I feel and like the most impactful point about this speech is that it illustrates the entire theme of the show, which is all of these people making all of these plays for all these positions of power, ultimately kind of whatever their intrinsic reasons are for doing it. And where Varys is coming at it from kind of like a geographical standpoint where he's like, we have to do what we can for everyone so that everyone can be can best preserve it or, be, or else everything falls into chaos and disarray and that will ultimately be worse off for everyone while Littlefinger is from the opposite perspective where he's like look things are going to be shitty no matter what we do just in general because there's always going to be something that comes up so at the very least I'm just going to take a piece of it what I can for myself ultimately and it's easier to do that when things are in such chaos because when that happens then somebody who nobody would expect to kind of arise from the ashes it's very almost Targaryen-esque if you will and I have the speech right here where it's chaos isn't a pit chaos is a ladder Many who try to climb it fail and never get to try again. The fall breaks them. But some are given a chance to climb, but they refuse. They cling to the realm or the gods or love. Illusions. Only the ladder is real. The climb is all there is. It's really interesting because I feel like this ultimately kind of is the ultimate breakdown of capitalism. Again, pardon my getting into politics here, but it kind of, you know, the breaking down of ultimately capitalism versus communism and kind of where they apply 
to the intrinsic human spirit, where at the end of the day, humans by nature are driven by one thing, which is survival. And they're always going to ultimately be trying to get kind of the one leg up over the other in order to preserve what they can, whether it be for themselves or a group of others that they feel and care for, you know, ultimately. And all these niceties that we've kind of, you know, you know, provided in society, ultimately, they're always going to be those who try to look through the loopholes and exploit something in order to try and get to that, ultimately. And I think that's what this show best illustrates, is trying to maintain that fine line between order and chaos. And the ultimate difference between Varys and Littlefinger that's represented, that kind of represents the two focal points of the entire show, where neither side is ultimately right, is what one does in order to toe that line, and then what one does in order to, you know, break it, ultimately, in order to benefit themselves. I don't know, like, what's kind of your take on that? Hey, you know, it's, <laughs> I think you summed it up uh, nicely. Like, it's, um, you know, it definitely speaks to the themes of the show, and as we uh, go on uh, reviewing the rest of the seasons, uh, we're going to continue seeing this chaos, and uh, I think one of the, the best parts about it is, um, in season four, you know, we, we do see Joffrey's death and it's, I, I don't think we get it revealed until like season five, um, that, you know, who actually, uh, was part of the plan. Uh, but you know, spoiler alert, you know, this is a recap show, but uh, Littlefinger, uh, you know, was one of the conspirators in there and it's, uh, he basically says, you, you know, why did I betray my allies? Well, uh, because they could never track it back to me and, you know, uh, it would, you know, thrust them into chaos and that would be a great distraction for them, uh, for him to achieve his own, uh, goals. Right. Um, and so I, I think it continue, you know, his character continues, uh, you know, this idea that he sets forth in this episode, uh, until his storyline, uh, reaches the climax. Yeah, it's uh, so, ultimately kind of disappointing because you're right there. Joffrey's death is kind of meant to be signified as the next stage in his grand plan to kind of take over everything, where, again, it kind of started right with the death of John Aaron that Lysa that kind of provoked and brought the Starks into the fray. and But that was ultimately kind of only so that he could get Catelyn for himself and kind of remove Ned from the fray. But now he's ultimately trying to throw things off at the Lannisters by allying with the Tyrells in order to... Um, in order to kill Joffrey and throw everything into the fray while he ultimately gains control over the Eerie. But then we introduce him back into the North and that's when things just get topsy-turvy. But again, that's, that's for later on down the road. But that was our recap of season three, episode six, entitled The Climb, episode 26. Only four episodes left of season three, only three more until the Red Wedding. We're moving along, Pat. We are ultimately moving along. We hope you guys had a great, fun, and safe Halloween. Ultimately, we've only got two months left of 2021 after today. That is crazy, just in general. This year went by so fast, like so fast, just in general. So that's it. Pat, where can the good people find you? Hey, listen, I'm here on Talking TV and I'm Talking Thrones. Uh, so you can definitely check me out here each and every week when we do this thing. And hey, I have an Instagram account at Patrick W. Huber. Uh, I might use it, might not use it. Who knows? But, uh, you know, go ahead and follow me if you like. And one day when I decide to, to do something on social media, you'll see it. Absolutely. And you can, of course, follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Movie Nerd Reviews, as well as Talking TV Podcast, where I post each and every single day, twice a day, advertising for you, the people, just in general. And, of course, you can continue to support us by clicking the subscribe button, clicking the like button, clicking the bell next to it. That way you guys get notified every single time we put up new kind. We'll be back next week for Episode 7. And as always, people, stay frosty, 12 seasons in a short film, and watch more fucking movies and be braced because winter... Just in general around here is indeed coming. We'll see you guys next time.